Good morning! Today is Sunday, the second day of April 2017. There was a plane crash in 1933 that killed 15 people. Many think that this might have been the first case of sabotage on an aircraft. Today I talk about the crash as well as my investigation into the crash on the 123rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I'm your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. In the words of Mark Bolin, you're built like a car. You've got a hubcap diamond star halo. You're built like a car. Oh, yeah. Thanks for joining me today. So, last time on Coffee with Jeff, I gave you a homework assignment in which you were to watch the film Daisies from 1966. I hope you did this because, like I promised, I'm going to explain what I think the end of the film meant. And in doing that, I'm going to spoil it for those who have not seen it. So, near the end of the film, the two girls end up in a large, fancy banquet room with lots of food and expensive table settings. And they go to town on the food and end up dancing on the table, breaking all the plates and crystal glasses and and such, and end up in a food fight. Suddenly, they fall into a body of water with men holding large wooden poles, either trying to help them or trying to drown them. They keep yelling that they don't want to be bad anymore. They want to be good now. They beg to be saved. Then it cuts back to the dining hall where the two girls enter and, in an attempt for redemption, attempt to put things back together. They piece the plates back together, they put the food back where it was, and generally clean things up, all the while whispering over and over that that they want to be good or they're being good. Through their best efforts, however, they can't really fix the mess they had made. I took this as Vera Chitilova saying something about how we can't go back. Once things changed, you can't return to the way they were. And I think that has something to do with the political climate at the time in Czechoslovakia. But since I'm not familiar with their history, I can't really say, but I can put it in terms of the USA with with things like the civil rights movement of the 1960s or the suffrage movement of the late 19th century. There's always the old guard that wants to return to the good old days. They want things to be like they used to be. But the fact is, you can never go back. Chitilova is a very intelligent person, and I'm sure everything in this film, even the things that seem silly, were there for a reason. When the two girls return to the dining room, they're dressed in tightly wrapped newspaper. That part, actually, I haven't figured out. And what happens to the girls after they attempt to clean up their mess? That part I won't spoil for you. You need to watch the film. So anyway, here in the Midwest, we've been getting a lot of rain lately. 
My front yard is more swamp than lawn, but that's okay. I've got a hot cup of coffee and a story to tell, so sit back and get ready to hear the tale of an airplane tragedy mystery. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Already we had airports. This was Croydon, bright, gleaming new field for London. Tower, passenger reception, customs area, control, weather section. Yes, the pattern was already there. And it was all working as smoothly and safely as taking a bus. And in all its years of operation, Imperial Airways never killed a passenger. This story is not just about the tragedy of a plane called City of Liverpool, which crashed in 1933, one in which many consider to be the first case of sabotage in air flight, but it's also my attempt to find out the truth of what happened. You see, the internet is filled with people who just repeat what others have written as if, because it's on the internet, it must be true. I visited many websites that speak of this air disaster, and they all pretty much have the same story. Many times it seems that one was just copied from another. For me, if at all possible, I like to try to find the original sources. Maybe a well-researched book or a newspaper article that was published at the time the event happened. I ask, are people just repeating a bit of fiction or a lie that they got from a source they assumed was telling the truth? I'm sure I've done that in the past. First, how about a quick history of the events of March 28, 1933? Like I said, the aircraft was called City of Liverpool, and it took off from the Heron Airport at Brussels, Belgium at around 12.30 p.m., on a two-hour journey to Croydon Airport in South London. The plane, a large boxy biplane with three engines, was an Armstrong Whitworth Argosy II owned by Imperial Airways that had been in operation for five years. These planes were well known for their good safety record. On board the plane were 12 passengers and three crewmen. Our story concerns three of them a 69-year-old Manchester dentist named Albert Voss, a 16-year-old girl named Lottie Voss, and a 32-year-old man named Louis Dearden. The other passengers range in age from 19 to 69 years old. Now remember, these were in the days before there were any safety checks. Nothing like gate checks or baggage inspections were even considered. And the skies were clear that day, with the sun shining bright and very little wind. The plane was flying over the fields of North Belgium. People on the ground looked up and knew something was wrong. A witness to the event, M. Leopold van dam Berg, was quoted in the Daily Mail the following day. I was working on my holdings about 3.45 p.m. summertime when my attention was attracted by the noise of a large airplane flying low. I looked up and it circled round, which appeared unusual. Then I see a puff of smoke and a tiny tongue of flame shoot out from the fuselage. The machine completed its circle, then appeared to be dropping low. It came almost over my head and then dived into the plowed field. 
At that moment, there was an explosion, followed almost immediately by a column of flame. But whether the explosion took place in the air or when the machine struck the ground, I cannot definitely say. The investigation report wrote, While cruising at 4,300 feet and 95 knots, Radio Navigator informed ATC that all was okay on board. A few minutes later, a fire broke out in the cabin. Immediately, the crew reduced altitude to perform an emergency landing, but at a height of 60 meters, aircraft stalled and crashed into an open field. Nobody survived. According to witnesses, the plane apparently split in two before it hit the ground, and when the wreckage was examined, there were 14 bodies, all dead. There was another dead, but not with the twisted metal, but about two miles away. Moments before when the fire first began, while it was about 700 feet in the air, witnesses on the ground saw a person jump and fall to his death. The man's name was Dr. Albert Voss, a dentist from Manchester. An investigation into the wreck indicated that the fire had started towards the rear of the plane in either the lavatory or the luggage area at the back of the cabin. There was no evidence of fire in the front portion of the plane or in the engines or fuel system before the impact on the ground. Initial reports suggested that a passenger smoking, even though that was prohibited aboard the craft, was the cause, for it was well known that passengers often tried to sneak a cigarette while in flight. The official investigation wrote, Investigation revealed that no technical failure occurred on the wings or engine. A quick and violent fire broke out in the cabin, maybe in the luggage or in the toilet compartments for unknown reasons. The fire was very intensive and no one in the cabin was able to use the fire extinguisher. Investigators thought about a criminal act, but Imperial Airways declared a few months later that the responsibility of any passenger could not be determined. As I wrote this, I had to stop for a moment and think about it. If you've ever seen a picture of the inside of one of these Armstrong, Whitworth, or Gosey 2 planes, they're very cramped quarters with all the passengers pretty much shoulder to shoulder. There's not a lot of room to move around and if a fire broke out that was as violent and intensive as these reports say, the final moments of these passengers had to be just unbearably awful. I mean, the smoke, the heat, the panic, it's too awful to even really think about. What makes the story interesting and why it survives today as something more than just a tragic airline disaster is that many believe that it was Dr. Albert Voss who deliberately set the fire. Most accounts of this story goes like this. Voss's brother, who Wikipedia calls an estranged brother, said that Albert used his profession as a dentist to profit from acquiring drugs and selling them illegally on the black market. Voss was being investigated by the police and they were very close to arresting him. His plan was to set fire to the Imperial Airways flight and jump out before the crash, figuring that no one would notice one less body in the burnt wreckage, allowing him, if he survived the fall, to start a new life under a new identity. And on top of all that, the 16-year-old girl, Miss Lottie Voss, who was on the plane that day, was reported to be his niece. 
So right away, I had big problems with the story. First of all, could any man be so evil and cold not to care that a schoolgirl, his own niece, was going to be burned alive? And did he really think he could survive such a fall? And like I said, I always attempt to find the original source of a story, but I failed to find any information out there that Albert Voss even had a brother, so I'm not sure where that came from. On the front page of the Daily Mail from the following day, the headline read, 13 British killed in airliner crash. Passengers leap to death as plane falls in flames. Suggestion that the fire was caused by smoking. And according to that article, another woman jumped out just before the plane hit the ground. In fact, I found that in many articles from the day, but apparently this woman jumped out seconds before the plane hit the ground and was on fire at the time. Dr. Voss's situation was completely different. The story from the Daily Mirror had this headline. Mid-air explosion wrecks giant plane. Eleven British people among victims. Liner crashes and sheets of flames. Last message, all's well. Passengers leap into space. The plane nosedives into flames from 600 feet. A wing fell off. Two passengers were seen leaping into midair. The machine struck the ground at 125 miles per hour. And in an article from the Daily Advertiser from April 29, 1933, over a month from the date of the accident, it read, An air expert, Major Mayo, gave evidence that the fire unquestionably started in the rear of the plane where it was first seen. There was nothing to indicate engine failure or other defects in the plane. Voss's clothing was severely burned, indicating that he had left the plane at the commencement of the fire, but he had no parachute. Counsel suggests that Voss was merely a victim of panic. In fact, I found news stories from about a month after the, the accident that states that there was no evidence that Voss set the fire, and I could find no information that he had an estranged brother who claimed he was a drug dealer. And I almost gave up on the story when I came across this. It was from the Sydney Morning Herald from April 6, 1933. It goes as follows. Airliner crash, death of Mr. Albert Voss. Hugo Voss gave evidence that his father was an undischarged bankrupt and had been in speculative financial difficulties on and off for 10 years. He seldom smoked, he said, and used matches, not a lighter. Sometimes his father had excitably threatened to commit suicide in a fashion that his family had regarded his threats as a joke. He denied his father occasionally possessed quantities of cocaine. He also denied that he had visited Germany six times a year to obtain quantities of drugs and said he had bought only dental necessities. He denied that Mr. Dearden, another victim of the disaster, went to help him bring back drugs, but said he went to bring back appliances. Hugo Voss added that he was sure his father would never do a dastardly thing like setting fire to a liner. Okay, so now I found a news story from the time that mentions drug smuggling, as both his sons were defending him from just such an accusation, yet still nothing about Voss's brother. Then I found this. 
This was from the Geraldton Guardian and Express from April 8, 1933. Disaster to Airliner. Belgian experts' views. Revelations about Voss. Belgian experts, after examining the wreckage of Imperial Airways liner City of Liverpool, decided that the fire commenced in the laboratory, as the inside of the door only is burnt. Experts also are convinced that Albert Voss was in the laboratory, as he was said to have leaped out the door adjacent to it prior to the crash. Voss and Mr. Dearden, another victim who was alleged to have been associated with Voss and drug smuggling, spent their last two nights in Brussels entertaining women at a cabaret. Voss then declared they would see a lot about him in the newspapers soon. Both were drinking heavily. Voss's liability abroad are believed to run into thousands of pounds. Okay, now I feel I'm getting somewhere. One last weekend in Brussels, partying heavy. You're going to hear about him in the paper soon. This seems to point a finger at Voss, but then from the Daily Standard on April 25th, 1933, I came across this. Voss caused disaster. Airliner crash in Belgium. Insurance ramp. An official investigation of the disaster to the British airliner, City of Liverpool, leaves little doubt that the catastrophe was deliberately brought on by one passenger, the Manchester dentist Albert Voss. It appears that Voss, who was financially embarrassed, and before embarking on the fatal journey, had taken out a policy of £1,000 insurance against air risk, and resolved to commit suicide and fired the plane in order to feign accident. His body was found more than two miles from the wrecked airliner, so he had apparently jumped a relatively long time before the crash. So the picture we're getting is becoming a little clearer about what went on. An insurance scam seems to make sense. I can believe he set the fire just for that reason, and it would be understandable that he would want to fall to his death rather than being burned alive. But I still have a problem with his 16-year-old niece being on the plane. Okay, so he doesn't care about all the other passengers but his own niece? But then I found this article. From the Tweed Daily from April 5th, 1933. City of Liverpool disaster, foul play theory, Voss's organs sent for analysis. The mail says that the post-mortem on Albert Voss, one of the victims of the City of Liverpool air disaster, did not disclose poison, but certain organs have been sent for analysis. The police are in possession of facts revealing that Voss alone practically escaped burning, only his left hand was badly burnt. The fingertips of his right hand were scorched, and his mustache, eyebrows, and front hair were singed, which is consistent with the theory that inflammable materials in his hand ignited. Okay, we know all that already. But you see, it's the last paragraph of this article that really interested me. His relatives are puzzled by the story that he was accompanied by a relative, as he did not possess a niece named Voss. Aerodrome officials at Brussels declared that they apparently were strangers. Now the idea of suicide seems a little more likely. It might have just been a coincidence that a 16-year-old girl was on that flight with the same last name, and the papers just assumed they were related. And as I continued to research Voss, I came across this newspaper article from the West Australian from October 19, 1933, 
that pretty much said what we already know except the last line which reads, Boss tried to commit suicide in October by taking large quantities of aspirin. Okay, so now we can say he was definitely suicidal. And it sucks because if he had been successful with the aspirin, 14 other innocent lives would have not suffered such a horrible fate. Now, there's one more bit of information that I read about Dr. Albert Voss that seems to appear in a lot of papers, and I'm not quite sure where this all fits in, but it reads like this. Order for false teeth. A message from Brussels states that while the inquest was proceeding, Manchester police and detectives from Scotland Yard inquiring into Mr. Voss's activities discovered that Accompanied by Dearden, Ross ordered 120,000 false teeth, costing 300 francs, and paid 1,000 francs on account. Mr. Voss and Mr. Dearden went to a spa for three days, during which, according to a hotel porter, Mr. Voss was highly excitable. Mr. Voss received 6,000 francs in Brussels, but none of the money has been recovered. Witnesses declare that Mr. Voss smoked cigarettes constantly, lighting a fresh one from the old one, and that Mrs. Lottie Voss was never seen in Mr. Voss's company in Belgium. Your guess is as good as mine about why Voss ordered over 100,000 false teeth, but I'm sure it had something to do with this whole scam. I'm just not sure what. And here's one more thing. Mr. Dearden seemed to be associated with him and his dealings and was on the plane. Was he part of the insurance scheme? Or was part of Voss's plan, if there was one, to kill his partner in the process? And I went through a ton of old newspaper articles and not one mentioned that he had an estranged brother who accused him of being a drug dealer. That part will always go as a mystery. So to my best guess, Dr. Albert Voss was a drug smuggler with his partner, Louis Dearden. He was about to be arrested for drug smuggling and was in very bad financial trouble. Voss and Dearden went for one last fling in Germany, bragging that soon you'd be reading about him in the paper. On March 28, 1933, both men boarded a plane after Voss bought a life insurance policy for himself. I can only assume this was to help out his family after his suicide. At some point, he went into a lavatory where he lit something on fire which burned quicker than he thought. Or maybe it was some sort of small explosive that went off in his hand. He panicked, and as the plane started to burn, he jumped from the back exit. Well, I can't say if this is true or not. But if it was true, Albert Voss was successful in a strange way, since it was never proven to be a suicide. The thing that sucks, and sucks in a lot of cases like this, is that he took out 14 other innocent people with him. Attention, ladies and gentlemen, please. Would everybody move to the lounge who is not carrying a bomb? Don't move! Mr. Salucci, they know about you back home. Stay where you are! Joe, you don't want to blow that thing and kill all these innocent people? I don't care about them! Joe, listen to me. It's hopeless. No one's ever gotten away with a stunt like this before. Joe, the insurance is worthless now. I don't believe you. Joe, you gotta trust me. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. 
Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. So now I want to talk about something else for a moment. You know, during my research for this and research I've been doing for my video channel, Old Man Kellyanne Film, I've talked about the film company Pathé or Path or Pata or whatever they're called. Hey, to all my friends who are linguists out there, and I know Nancy Fry from the History Files mentioned this a while back, what is the correct pronunciation of this film company? It's spelled P-A-T-H-E with a little accent over the E. You know, I've had a long history of mispronouncing words. If you listen to Coffee with Jeff long enough, you'll hear a few. And I'm very self-conscious of this, so whenever there's a word that I think might be trouble, I know of a few websites I can go to to get the correct pronunciation. Yet when I tried that for this film company, it seems that everyone everywhere pronounces it differently. You know, lately I've been studying a lot about the early days of the motion picture, you know, the pre-Hollywood days. And, and Pathé was one of the first motion picture companies, and one of the only ones from before the 20th century to survive to this day. So it's sort of important that I should know how to refer to it. So that's this week's homework assignment to let me know the proper way to say Pathé. And I'm probably saying it wrong there. And anyway, you can get a hold of me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Now how about the ending credits? Could you imagine if the Coca-Cola company's business plan was to make their sugary beverage and give it away for free? How long do you think they would stay in business? Well, that's what me and everyone else at SciCon does every day. The only thing that keeps us going are our wonderful supporters at our Patreon page. You can be a supporter, too. You can find out information at SciCon. That's www.cicon.fm. And, of course, a sincere thanks to everybody who already supports the show. And while at the SciCon website, why don't you check out a few of our other amazing shows? On the last episode of Take 5, Anthony and Jack, who are two men who don't have children, get together and for five minutes they talk about babies. You should give this show and all the others at SciCon a listen. They can be found at SciCon.fm. Oh, and quickly, this is a comment about one of our other shows, Pint Notes. Why doesn't Josh let Becca use fractions during her rating of music and beer? Josh, there's nothing wrong with fractions. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can complain or just say howdy. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I do have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the pennies to help financially, and believe me, I understand... Just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars or something. Those really help me out. And remember, all the links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Saikan's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Saikan Network. To my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. Rebecca for emailing me a suggestion this week. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. 
Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all of you who repost this on places like Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Bye. With Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. With Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee. Coffee, coffee with Jeff.